Hello, this is Africa Science Focus, your favourite science show, and I'm the producer, Harrison Lewis. I've one quick favour to ask before we get started. By now, you'll know that Africa Science Focus is a huge collaborative effort from those working for our wonderful sponsors to those side dev feet on the ground hustling over stories. If you enjoy listening to the show, please do give us a quick two-minute review on your favourite podcast app. It really helps to spread the word and it also helps us to provide up-to-date scientific reporting in Africa to those who really need it. Thanks so much. Now we've been taking a look back over some of the best bits from the past season. Today, we're shining the spotlight on agriculture and conservation. We'll be venturing into Uganda's remotest national parks. We'll be repurposing plastic pollution in our major cities and unearthing the benefits of good nutrition. So what's first? Well, for communities that reside within protected areas, the wildlife and ecosystem can provide all the resources necessary to live in comfort, but only when it's managed sustainably. Gladys Kalima Zigzoka knows this all too well. She's the founder of Conservation Through Public Health, responsible for the recent revival of the Ugandan wild gorilla population. Our reporter Halima Athamani caught up with her earlier in the season and heard how in 1996 the first gorilla scabies outbreak began, spurring Gladys into action to not only help save the species from local extinction, but also bring about a new era of peace between wildlife and the local residents. We held a workshop with over 1,000 community members in eight villages. Many of them were already benefiting from gorilla tourism and they were very willing to listen to what we had to say. They said we don't want to make the gorillas sick, then getting us out of poverty. One community hadn't started tourism yet, but the gorillas were always outside, and we got mixed reaction from them. But you could tell that they wanted tourism to begin so they can benefit, like the northern part of Bindi was benefiting. They had already had that in the north. The tourists buy your crafts, they buy your food, they stay in your lodge. You know, it's really good. You get more jobs as rangers. They, they, they could see the big benefits in the north and they wanted these groups to be habituated as well in the south. Then we went to DRC mm-hmm. and the gorillas sometimes go there. So we went there as well because we think maybe even that's where they got the scabies. But as long as they're able to still go to DRC, mm-hmm. they can still pick up other diseases as well. So we went officially around the forest to DRC. And when we got there... It was a very interesting meeting because the, always the first question I'd ask is, how many of you like gorillas? Mm-hmm. Not even how many of you seen gorillas, how many of you like gorillas? Okay. So when I asked that question when we went to DRC, I was shocked by the response. Everyone kept quiet. Then an old muse stood up and said, in his life he's never seen gorillas. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just like, oh! I turned to my fellow like Ugandan delegation and I said, are we in the right place? <laughs> then, <laughs> and then the chief warden decided to change the whole workshop to oh. why we should protect wildlife. The forest is important for water. Mm-hmm. It yeah. now became, the, what are the basics of conservation? Because we realized we're not going anywhere with these people. So then I asked the lady from International Gorilla Conservation Program, the Congolese, what happened? You know, like you were supposed to mobilize the communities. But it looks like you mobilize their own communities. Mm-hmm. And she said, no, they're lying. They've seen gorillas. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my goodness. So, <laughs> so I'm like, so why are they lying? Okay. Then she said, they're scared. Oh. 
because we came in soldiers and they thought we had come to arrest them because the, some gorillas had got lost in DRC. So they said the best thing we can do is to tell them that we've never seen gorillas. We, once she told me that, it made me appreciate the great efforts that had been done on Uganda side mm -hmm. in gorilla conservation. Yeah. Um, but it was a big eye-opener for me of conservation, you know, you start off, it starts off with dialogue before you can do other things. Mm -hmm. And the Congolese community had not had that dialogue. No one had come to talk to them about conservation. So if they've not even talked about conservation, now you're talking about gorillas. Now you're talking about... It was too much for them. Mm -hmm. So at least at one meeting, we were able to start off with that dialogue. Communities are able to take advantage of tourism, but that wasn't enough for Gladys, oh no. She also found a surprising way of encouraging their protection through the growth and production of gorilla conservation coffee. So after 10 years, we started gorilla conservation coffee. And because we realised that many people are unhealthy because they were poor. And when you'd be trekking gorillas, you'd often, I'd often cross coffee farms. And sometimes when you were tourists, they stop and tell them this is a tree, a coffee tree, Rabasta, Arabica. And mm -hmm. tourists get excited because many of them only see coffee in a supermarket or a cafe. They don't actually see it. They've never seen a tree in their life, exactly. <laughs> so, so then, but then I found out that those people who are planting that coffee, they were not getting a good price for their coffee mm. and a steady market. And later on, we found that these same people were entering the park to poach mm. and collect firewood because it, they had no ready income for their coffee. And so we, my husband actually came up with the idea of why don't we develop a global brand which can save gorillas. So we started... Gorilla Conservation Coffee, where we give the farmers above market prices for good coffee. Um, and it has to be good because we have to sell it at more than what we, what we bought it. Mm. And the, the coffee is good because it's a high altitude. You know, wind is a high altitude. The gorillas live in a mountain. And so when you have high altitude, you can have very good Arabica. And so we, it is very good coffee. It was among the top 30 coffees sampled by Coffee Review in 2018, wow. number 29 out of 30, mm -hmm. which were really pleased because the venture was the, our idea. I went for training in Switzerland, and that's how Gorilla Conservation Coffee was born. They helped us to develop the whole idea, but it was all about providing sustainable financing for conservation. So a donation goes to support the Gorilla Health, community health, and community education we do. And in that way, we're trying to not just rely on grants all the time, mm -hmm and donations, but also to be able to have a sustainable business. Mm -hmm. You know, just like tourism is being seen as the most sustainable way to sustain conservation, yeah. but, you know, guerrilla conservation coffee is also another way to sustain conservation. Okay. Whilst Gladys tries to clean up the practices of local communities in rural regions of Uganda, another of our contributors this season, Nzambi Matei, is trying to clean the streets of her capital city, Nairobi. Nzambi is a mechanical engineer and an environmentalist who became tired of watching plastic waste continue to build up on the streets of Kenya. So, well, she took action. In 2018, she started Genji Makers, a company dedicated to turning throwaway plastics into new building materials. Our reporter, Michael Koloki, was fortunate enough to snoop around Nzambi's workshop, where that waste plastic is converted into bricks. As Michael walked down to meet his guest, he describes seeing a large number of plastic bottles. 
piled high along the pavements. Plastic bags were scattered across the verges and factory waste abandoned outside industrial units. It is waste similar to this that Nzambi Mate, who I am walking with here at the moment, uses to make something quite interesting. Nzambi, you turn plastic waste into bricks. <laughs> yes, yes, I do that. Uh, my name is Nzambi, Nzambi Mate, and our first product line of pavers are made out of recycled plastic waste. So yes, I deal with waste. Could you explain what pavers are? Okay, so um, ideally speaking, pavers are those the stones that you see in driveways, in car parks, in footpaths. So what inspired you to make pavers, these bricks, from plastic waste? So the thought process was well, there is this um, litter everywhere. The plastic litter is not uh, a Kenya problem, it's a worldwide problem and it's everywhere. And so my, my thought process was, what can we do as a material scientist? What can I do to take the plastic waste and convert it into something that is practical and useful in my community? And uh, the, the only practical and useful category I would think of is the basic needs, either the food, uh, shelter, or clothing. So we settled for shelter. And my goal was fine. Let me figure out a way to convert the plastic waste to impact the shelter, which is the affordable housing space. And that is how it started. You actually went out and, you know, did your own experiment of sorts to come up with what would build what you wanted to build. Yes, um, the challenge was at that point in time is we couldn't afford that which was in the market. And then the other thing is we we didn't find exactly what we wanted. We found anything within the concrete industry or the plastic industry, nothing in between plastic and concrete. And so we were like, okay, fine, we don't, we don't have it, that means we create it. Now, as we're walking along, I have noticed a stack of plastic bottles. And I presume that is your workshop. Yes, yes, sir. <laughs> okay. Where do you get all these plastic bottles from? So we have what you call the post-industrial and post-consumer plastic waste. What you're seeing here is post-industrial. This is the plastic waste you get from factories after they have done their production. And then for the post-consumer is the plastic we get from mostly the dump site and the environment. And this one we collaborate with a lot of youth groups and waste pickers. And these are, well, maybe I think several kilos of sand here on a mat. Is this sand being going to be used in the construction of your bricks? Or is this for something else here? Is this someone from a different company? No, no, this is, uh, we're going to use it. So we make uh, what you call polymer concrete, and um, that's a mixture of plastic and an aggregate. In this case, the aggregate is sand. So just to give you context, uh, when you're building using the normal Portland cement, you take sand, you take ballast, water, cement in the different ratios, and then you make what is known as concrete. Now, in this case, we replace the, uh, the sand, the ballast, and water with just sand. Because they need an aggregate which has a relatively fine granules and just enough spacing to have a plastic act as a binder. In the past three years, Nzambi has recycled 20,000 kilograms of plastic waste. That's the same weight as five fully grown elephants. And it's due to those efforts that Nzambi was recognised at the United Nations Environment Programme, where she was titled as a young champion of the earth back in 2020. Like most of the stories we cover, our contributors today all aspire to educate others. 
Our last snippet is taken from Diana Mbatie Umsumgaye, a public health expert specialising in strengthening community health programmes throughout sub-Saharan Africa. She believes that sustainable homegrown farming and good nutrition can be just as important as having easy access to medical expertise. It was through farming that my parents were able to take me to school. But beyond that, it was through farming that we were able to afford a decent, well-balanced meal. Our parents fairly knew what foods were nutritious for a young child. I've learned in my life that we can't close this conversation of health when we're not looking at the multisexuality. And as a public health specialist and a professor of public health, I have learned that there are key levers of change that are just a magic bullet. Number one is nutrition. The second one is in immunization. With immunization, you can prevent so many morbidities and mortalities. The third magic bullet is in family planning. And overarching of all these is community health and community engagement and community ownership. And this is so overarching across all these three magic bullets that I've talked about. I hold farming so close to my heart. And so I'm proud to say that through the work at Kwagala Farm, at Kwagala Farm I'm a co-founder. And in that work we've been to we've been able to empower over two thousand women with urban farming skills with an agribusiness focus. But we've seen that impact on the nutrition indicators for these families. And so farming integrated with health is not only the best thing to do, but it is the right thing to do because multi-sectoral collaboration will, will take us farthest and will bring sustainability of the work that we continue to do. Plenty to sink your teeth into there. And of course, there's even more to chew on by listening to the full episodes available online. If you want to catch them, you need to head over to the Africa Science Focus webpage by visiting www.sidev.net. That's www.scidev.net. Or alternatively, you can find everything from season one and two on your favourite podcast app. And as I mentioned earlier, it would mean a lot to us if you had time to leave a review. Today's show was produced by me, Harrison Lewis, with editing by Ben Dayton. Africa Science Focus is produced by SciDevNet and distributed in association with your local radio station. See you again next week. <laughs>